welcome back, friends, nerds, librarians, and all you ilk to episode 62 of SS Librarianship. This we talk about books. was a really fun one. We actually, yeah, we do. Books, books, books. <laughs> as per usual, we, we, there's TV shows as well. We feel like we've been watching lots of TV lately. But, um, but yeah, so we've got a Mind Grapes for you. TV, book, TV. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we jump in and we talk about ebooks. Yeah, a whole and episode. We're so happy to have Sarah Felkar from West Van Memorial Library on, um, who has been a driving force behind the annual um, BC Libraries Co op ebook summit uh, in the five years that it's been going on. And I got to attend my first one because I'm officially yeah. a digital collections librarian now. That's fantastic. Yeah, Sarah was um, an absolutely incredible guest. She is hugely knowledgeable on the topic and care, like clearly quite passionate about it. So mm-hmm. um, it was really awesome. Those things. Yeah, it was really awesome. Just kind of like wind her up and let her go um, to talk about about these things because it was such a great conversation. Yeah, and we really and we I think we mentioned this a couple of times in there. We really feel like this is a warm up. This was sort of let's skim the surface, talk a bit about ebooks a bit about authentication a bit about you know sort of the state of things with publishers and platforms and whatever but um but there's lots and lots more to talk about so think of this as sort of a brief survey (laughs) and then uh and then we're hoping to dive into some corners of this with sarah and with other folks um who know lots about this and can help us all get a handle on it and she did something really amazing where she actually made me feel for publishers, <laughs> which is something I don't do very often. Uh-huh. So, so watch out for that. Publishers are people too. <laughs> well, I guess then, without further ado, we should just get this one started. I'm Ali Sullivan, and cool motive, still murder. And I'm Sam Mills, and actually, Mr. President, that's not entirely accurate. So Sam, what uh, what have you been up to? What's what's on your mind grapes this week? Two weeks, I guess. Um, yeah, Fortnite, right? Didn't we agree on Fortnite? I think so. <laughs> um, so I'm still on a little bit of a like Philippa Gregory kick. Um, oh, why? I'm onto my I'm onto my third <laughs> one now. I like got into them and I couldn't stop. But, <laughs> but because of that, I was like, okay, well, I need other period things, and like I've exhausted uh, Downton Abbey, and you know, and I don't want anything too romantically focused or too like just horrendously depressing, which mm-hmm. are two kind of central characteristics of a lot of period dramas. <laughs> oh, if you watch North and South, that's a good one. I mean, very romantic. I have not. But it's good. Well, and I also wanted something that was on Netflix because, like, we had that oh. whole hola issue, and I just did not want to deal with like getting things from weird sources. I just wanted Canadian Netflix, so right. I settled on the Paradise. Okay, have you guys watched this? I think I saw an ad for it today, or something. Is it a show or a movie? It's been canceled. Like there were two episodes, or sorry, two seasons on um, <laughs> I was BBC. Say, that's a pretty well. A it's pretty a BBC sh- show, so it could have been two episodes. <laughs> but, uh, no, it was BBC masterpiece for two seasons. Okay. Um, it ended in 2013, I think. And so I've watched the first two episodes, and I'm pretty into it so far. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a little overblown, and a little like. I mean, it's based on actual history in the sense that it's based on an Emile Zola novel that in turn was based on a real place. Oh, okay. <laughs> but but um, <laughs> it's, it's definitely quite like normative about the gender roles and the period that it's representing, which is a little disappointing because it's fiction, right? So you could mess it up a little. But mm-hmm. uh, so it basically it's set in London in the first department store of any size. And the okay. department store is called The Paradise. And so it follows this, um, and it's maybe like the, right around the turn of the century. I couldn't say exactly when, but like sure. early 1900s. Um, and it's run by this guy whose name is uh, John Moray. Everyone just calls him Moray. And he is the son of a draper who's sort of made good by being very charismatic and convincing people to invest in the paradise because women will come and part with their money for all these pretty things and so this is his mm. business model Which is shopping. <laughs> basically that could be the tagline for this show <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Except that then you have the character of Denise, who's this young, blonde country girl who comes to the city because she just can't take it in the country anymore. And she lands at her um, uncle's dress shop and finds that he's not doing well enough to take her on, either as an employee or as a dependent or whatever. So Mm -hmm. she goes across the street because (laughs) the area of London they're in is like this block. You basically only see this block that they're on. And it's like a tiny town into itself. I don't know how period accurate that is. But anyway, she goes across the street to the paradise and gets a job in the ladies wear department. And um, she's really interesting because so the first episode um, goes by and, you know, she's learning a ropes and the other girls are jealous of her and, you know, the boys are flirting with her and whatever. And you sort of think that she's developing this attraction to Murray, who's very attractive um, and sort of, you know, mysterious and charismatic and has a dead wife that everyone gossips about. And, um, and in the end, one of the other girls turns to her as they're all standing there watching him give this big speech to the employees and starts, you know, bugging Denise about, about being in love with Murray. And she's like, you don't understand. I don't love him. I want to be him. and so it's kind of great because she's the one outlier of all the women in this where she actually is more interested in the business of running the shop Mm -hmm. and sort of coming up with ideas for displays and sales and things and um yeah so she she's very interesting she's keeping my focus for sure (laughs) and it's very pretty i mean the dresses and the things in the shop (laughs) it very much is styled after like a turn of the century like bon marche in paris which is Mm -hmm. where the original novel was set um it was set a little earlier in paris it's called here's my horrible french au bonheur des dames uh shop girls of paris is the name of the original novel by zola Hmm. And then they took it and put it in England so that people could be speaking English, I guess. <laughs> well, but like that stopped people like that has ever stopped someone from putting a movie in France, but having people speak English. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm I mean, looking putting at you it in, in there ancient, ancient Greece and having people speak with English accents or like any of the musketeers like they shouldn't be speaking English, man. Hmm. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. No, you're not wrong. I'm never wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, but so far, it's fun. I, li- I like the acting. I like the costumes um the accents are great because it gives all these british actors a chance to really like put on these thick like turn of the century london accents in one way or another (laughs) higher class or lower class how do Um, we know that they were thicker in the turn of the century i I know right it really is a construct (laughs) (laughs) it's england england i wrote my honors thesis on that novel Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but yeah, so far I would recommend it. The reason I, I was so hesitant about the gender roles is that um, the second episode, this um, shop boy who runs the glove counter named Sam, who's mm-hmm. very charming, um, charms this lady who's visiting. Um, so basically, it's it's a little complicated even after two episodes because Murray is sort of seeing this very well-to-do woman who's in love with him and wants to marry him and he's not ready yet after the death of his wife and so they're sort of courting and um, she's very wealthy and her father is very wealthy and has agreed to invest in the store and um, she brings a friend of hers to the store and for a minute I thought that maybe this was going to be a really interesting treatment of like women's mental health issues in turn of the century sort of England because Mm -hmm. this woman was extremely distressed and like crying at the drop of hat and um, shopping, shopping, shopping (laughs) as like shopping therapy. And so the episode has clearly her womb was wandering. (laughs) Yeah. And so I thought maybe there would be some, yeah, some sort of ironic distance from that or whatever, some commentary on it. Instead, Sam, this charming shop boy, helps her out. Um, she's She gets very distressed and upset, and she doesn't want her friends to know. And so he um, snaps off the heel of her shoe so she can pretend that she's sprained her ankle, and then she doesn't have to explain why she's crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, she, you know, she, out of gratitude, invites him out to um, the home of her friend with whom she's staying uh, and ends up unburdening herself to him about how she's actually not visiting she's left her husband because her husband is awful and she can't live with him anymore there's no Mm -hmm. real details about it it's not clear if there's abuse going on or what um and then she 
kisses Sam just as this friend and her father come bursting in. And of course, you know, as a woman of reputation, she panics and slaps him. And it becomes this like, you know, he said, she said sort of situation between Murray and this wealthy man who's bankrolling him. Um, and in the end, in the end, things are mostly resolved, except that she goes back to her husband. And so it's this really mixed message of like, class shouldn't matter, the truth should matter, but also a bunch of us know that we're sending this woman back to a potentially abusive situation and none of us are going to say anything about that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that was interesting. So, I mean, I don't know if they're going to pick her story up later. I would be impressed if they did. But so that's the stuff that's making me hesitate. Like, yeah, it's a period drama, but do people have to be dirtbags? Well, I mean, that's probably period accurate, though. I guess. I mean, because like a you know a wouldn't a woman of repute would probably yeah be forced to rejoin that situation. It wouldn't. I mean, where else would she go? But if you're writing this as fiction for a modern audience, mm. then shouldn't yeah. the heroes that your modern audience is supposed to identify with have something to say about that, even in a period framed way? I don't know. I think it's part of this whole like uh, trendy to be extraordinarily bleak in television right now. Mm. You know, like the the characters that a lot of um, and I mean, like to, to their, you know, to their credit, you know, it's amazing television. It's great TV. But like the people who we're being asked to identify with these days are, you know, meth dealers and uh, serial killers. And like, you know, there's there's. You know, I think things are darker than they once were. I suppose if you stack this up against, like, the white family and Sansa Stark situation and whatever, it's really not that bad. But (laughs) but it's still, I don't know, I still have a bit of a bone to pick with it. But it's, I guess, an interesting question, especially for librarians who talk about genre a lot, right? Like, just because it's period, does that mean that you can get away with making your characters do dirtbaggy things? Yeah, it's like, would you like a little bit of historical with your fiction or a little bit of fiction with your history? Mm. You know, it's like chocolate and peanut butter situation, right? I guess. <laughs> Something like that. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, I so far I give The Paradise a like tentative thumbs up, but I would like to see how, how their women evolve. And I'd like to see if Denise gets to, you know, go off and run her own shop in the end or something like that. Um, yeah, but that's me. So what about you, Sarah? What have you been uh, reading or watching or listening to or whatever lately? Listening to. <laughs> um, actually, you know, talking about uh, sort of genre and not period stuff, but futuristic things. Ah. I've been listening to... Um, John Ringo's uh, older series uh, that starts with In the Looking Glass. I don't know if either of you are sci-fi fans at all. I'm a huge sci-fi fan, but I actually have never read any Ringo. It's uh, when you're talking about the role of women, it's it you know brings great things to the fore. Um, I have a very deep weakness for, um, I guess they call it military sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Nice, but it is the the treatment of women is pretty deplorable. Uh, especially in this current book that I'm listening to. But the first the first book is fantastic. Um, the idea is that there's this horrible accident at a university in Florida um, that creates this um, sort of space mirror uh, that allows aliens on the other side to walk through. Oh, I'm in. And yes, and then it spawns <laughs> other space mirrors and they, they grow throughout the book. And some of them lead to worlds where there's like nothing on the other side. Um, there's other worlds that have, you know, just random things. Sometimes they find very bad aliens and they end up fighting very bad aliens. One of the little mirrors ends up having, uh, they call it something entity. And there's an entire state that's lost. It's just this cloud and anyone that walks in um, goes mad and never comes back out. Um, and they, they talk about all they can hear is the screaming. Uh, <laughs> kind of just a, a fun sort of piece of it, but it's mostly about this one race of aliens that comes in and is trying to, is like, oh, new planet for us to take over. And so Earth has to, especially America, has to fight against this <laughs> space alien race um, and, and save the day. So it is fun because I, I do sometimes like the 
the books where it's like it's not Earth going out there and trying to conquer. It is sort of, oh, we've done something or people have arrived here and now we're, we're having to, to deal with them. Huh. So very like a, a very Doctor Who approach kind of. With more guns and military people, yeah. yeah or I like suppose, yeah. And Ender's Game sort of kind of thing. Huh. It, yeah, Ender's Game. Uh, I mean, yeah, the politics there is debatable, yeah. I guess. Like, <laughs> who, who are the invaders is kind of a central question of Ender's Game. but Yeah. <laughs> but it is, yeah, sort of closer to the Ender's Game uh, side of things. Uh, for, so is it like genre. a, is it a pre-existing, like, core of space military or like do the Americans have to create a space military in response or yes and they create it so the first book is sort of setting out you know there is others out there and there's other planets and we should explore and in book two um, they create their first spaceship and their first sort of space military um, I skipped book three accidentally <laughs> and uh, it happens. book four has yeah it happens with these it doesn't quite matter they catch you up pretty quick but they are have their second sort of spaceship that they're about to, to send out there to explore the universe and still deal with these original aliens plus other friendly aliens that they've met in the the main the meantime so. perhaps working towards some sort of federation oh god it always comes back to star trek with you sam <laughs> <laughs> possibly um i i kind of feel like it's worse a bit around women but um i it's shoot i've got it on my bookshelf um behind me but uh tanya huff's uh sort of foray into science fiction feels a bit closer um mm. to sort of the aliens that they're bringing into it so what is it about the depiction of women that's mm. so kind of eyebrow raising in the series do you think they're either not there Mm-hmm. Um, in book book one, there can't remember there being uh, there's one female character who was a child, um, and therefore safe. Book two, they had the quirky female scientist, uh-huh. um, who is a linguist, very smart, you know, just with her crazy hair and just you know, bigger than life <laughs> attitude, uh, that manic pixie dream girl sort of thing uh-huh. and in uh, book four I, I'm feeling it more because they just had a one of their characters get married and we've about a half a chapter of I just want to be a military wife um, dialogue which is oh, gross dear. yeah <laughs> and you, you don't feel like it. he's doing it at all like ironically no not this author John oh. Ringo has uh, published some books that have made some very sort of inner workings of this author's mind where you're like, oh dear, this this man's got some strange fantasies. <laughs> oh, that's a shame when you find somebody who has sort of a great concept and then there are these girl bits that you're like, it'd be so easy to do it better. There are. Like you've got the David Weebers out there who uh, have honor uh, the Honor Harrington books, either of you. Oh, uh, I know about them. Yeah, They're, me too, um, but I haven't funny. read them. I've actually read... I've read a few of the books that they're based on. Okay. Because they're, they're like originally, aren't they originally kind of based on Horatio Hornblower in like a really yes. weird way? Yeah. So I've read a bunch of the Horatio Hornblower books, but I actually haven't gotten around to Honor Harrington yet. I think there's a couple on our shelf, but I, but I think John's read them and I'm intern John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't gotten around to them yet. Yeah, they're, they are basically Horatio Hornblower except with a female space captain instead. Right. Right. Um, and there, you know, there's a male writer writing sort of a military-esque sci-fi that has a female character done very well. So. Mm-hmm. Nice. I think that's the best pitch for those books anyone's ever given me. <laughs> <laughs> so I know like, how to sell them. <laughs> well, it's our trade, right? So, like, overall, would you, if you had somebody come in, say, to the library and want, you know, a good sci-fi read, would you recommend the Ringo series? If they enjoy sort of any of the sort of big name thrillers that are written by by guys, um, Mm. I'd recommend them if they enjoy the movies, which um, a lot of things explode. Mm -hmm. If they enjoyed, oh, shoot, what was that recent one where they blew up um, Washington, D.C. and almost killed the president? I had Uh, Channing Tatum in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, White House Down. Yes, if they enjoyed that, they would probably enjoy. (laughs) I enjoyed um, White House Down. It was a very good movie. Uh, <laughs> Although White House Down least. was more feminist than its um, its opposite number, right? Olympus has fallen. Right. Yeah. 
I haven't seen Olympus Has Fallen yet. Mm. I think it lacks the is, like little girl um, saving the day with her YouTube channel. Yes. Well, these do lack the little girl saving the day with her YouTube channel, but they are fun. They do have that sort of, you know, banding together, just that under the unexpected win against mm -hmm. great odds. Um, and if you want to try out some sci-fi without it feeling super sci-fi, especially mm -hmm. book one, huh. it, it, is a, it is a good start. All right. Well, I've also been like, I actually have kind of a Mind Grapes update. Oh, okay. If that makes sense. Well, let's, and again, that's again, sci-fi, but uh, sci-fi dealing with some actually pretty awesome female characters. Um, so I, I remember like a long, long time ago, I talked about The Hundred. Yes. And we had just started watching it. And I think we got, I got about halfway through the first season before I kind of uh, abandoned it. And then I, I was seeing things and people were saying, you know, it gets really, really good. Just kind of like try to stick with it. And so John and I ended up kind of giving it another shot. And this time, you know, paying a little bit more attention and, and stuff like that. And oh, my God, is it ever good? Huh. Like huh. once you get over the like teenagers being teenagers of it and you do pretty quickly because very quickly they are faced with these like horrendous choices that they have to make. Um it ends up being really, really good. And it's funny. I actually learned that um, they're actually based on a young adult novel series. Huh. But um, from everything I've read, the novels are terrible and the show is really good. Huh. That's kind of an which, outlier. Which which doesn't happen very often. So I like I read the synopsis of the books and, and it looks like the books are a lot kind of more slow moving and um, there's like a lot more attention paid to the kind of romancy elements hmm. and um, and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, the hundred ends up being like a really really interesting show. Do you feel um, like like people have to punch their way through? Like there is the, is there a point where it changes significantly? I'd say so. I'd say like um, in, in about like the seventh or eighth episode of the first season is really when you like things start to really go bonkers. Um, and, you know, and, and you start to like see these characters dealing with more and more kind of horrible stuff that's going on. Um, and uh, and then the second season, it gets really interesting because it gets much more intricate. And like, you know, there's there's way more going on than you originally thought. And um, and the characters are really good and they have these characters that are dynamic and that do change and that do change their ideas and change their minds and. Um, you know, constantly question authority, which I always really like. So I guess that's the advantage of having mostly teenage protagonists, right? Just you can have them go through sort yeah. of big philosophical upheavals. Yeah. And not just, you know, not just teenagers, but also delinquents, you know, like these mm -hmm. were, these were kids who were originally sent to earth because they committed crimes. Um, so it, anyway, it gets really, really good. Um, I, it, but it's so like, it's so easy to spoil. <laughs> I feel like I don't want to talk, you know, just about the hundred. Um, well, refresh yeah. your memory about the the premise. It's like an Elysium okay. situation. Uh, I didn't see Elysium because I saw heard that it was terrible. Like fancy so, space station, Earth is a slum kind of thing. Not just huh? a slum, but on the space station, they actually think that Earth is re irradiated beyond um, survivability. So it's a hundred years after some kind of nuclear apocalypse. And um, what's finally happening is the space station is starting to break down um, and they're starting like problems are starting to crop up faster than they can put out the fires. Um, and, you know, so then there's issues of like, you know, they don't have enough like the, the, the CO2 generator or like the, there's machines that convert the CO2 back into oxygen and those are starting to fail. So like there's not enough air. And so what they do is they decide to send a drop ship with. Um, oh, and because. Um, because the ship is so small, like the station, sta station is so small, they have a zero tolerance policy for any kind of crime of any sort if you're above the age of 18. So it doesn't matter what crime you commit, there's, you're pretty much going to get what they call floated. So you're just like, you're shoved out in air chute, pretty much. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so that actually becomes like kind of a funny insult. Like, I'll float you, you know, like. It's funny. Ugh, um, they call people floaties. No, they don't call them floaties. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Bad sci-fi insults. There have been worse. 
Uh, yeah, what is that? Oh, yeah, the Maze Runner has some truly stupid slang. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, greeny. Oh God, what yeah. A... Um, <laughs> anyway, so um, so these these hundred kids are sent down to the Earth to see if it's survivable, to see if the radiation has gone down enough that they can actually, you know, live on the planet. And they think that all life has been wiped out. Like they don't know if there's anything down there. Um, and uh, so the they. A bun- they survive the drop they get down there and then it's all about how they how they survive and then how the um the station called the ark um how they eventually start to communicate with each other again because all the communications are knocked out when they actually drop the ship and it's just it's super interesting and like they have some really great female characters one of the teenagers who you think is going to be the most annoying actually turns out to be like the most badass like um, she's a criminal simply by virtue of the fact that she was born, um, because the ship also has a one child policy. Oh. And so this, um, you know, her mother had the second kid and hid it from everybody. And so she's like never left her room, um, like never left her like family's apartment. And, um, so when she does get on the ground, like, you know, she's the one who's like running around and amazed by everything and like chasing butterflies. And like, you think, oh, God, she's going to be so annoying. But then she ends up having this like huge, like street smart element to her. I, well, it's not street smart, but like she just like she gets it on the ground. Like she's really, really quick and she's really, really smart and um, like ends up being completely awesome. So. It was a nice surprise. Like, so if we're talking, you know, about these kind of disappointing female characters, this is kind of the opposite of that, where, like, your character you think is going to be, like, this, like, typical annoying teenager actually ends up being kind of, you know, kind of a bamf. And it's really, really cool. So I really like the character. I, I expected to hate her off the bat. Huh. But it's interesting. I feel like that's more typical now of... I mean, not necessarily them not being annoying, but science fiction now tends to skew younger, especially on the screen. Whereas, yeah. like, like I'm assuming these John Rinko books, Sarah, are, like, adult mm-hmm. characters, right? Like, adult uh, yeah, military except dudes? The, except for the first book where they, they did have a, the child, the one child character. She was pretty heavily involved throughout, and she showed up in book two, but has yet to have anything to do with book three. Hmm. Um but there's also a co-author, and I'm wondering if that might have an effect as well. Mm. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Ada just fell off a chair. Are you? You're so bad at being a cat, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of her only job. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. So, did you? You you said you didn't want to just talk about that for my sure. So you have one yeah, more thing so to the, share with us. The other thing I want to mention it's like it's something I read actually a long time ago, and I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast yet. Have I talked about sex criminals yet? Um, I don't think so. I can't remember doing it. Um, I remember always intending. I mean, it to. would help if we were always recording when we have conversations with each other. Yeah, because then yeah. I'd be able to remember. Like, oh, we talked about we it together. Just, therefore, we should just stop hanging out uh, if we're not <laughs> recording. I'm just kidding. Oh, that's uh, no, so um, anyway, if if I have talked about it, I'm sorry. I'm gonna talk about it again um, because you know it's worth it. It's definitely that amazing. So um, one of the very exciting things um, that happened when we got news on the for the Joko cruise is that um, Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue McCormick are actually going to be there, mm-hmm. um, which is awesome. Uh, so Matt Fraction um, with Chip Zdarsky wrote a comic called Sex Criminals that's absolutely incredible. Um, and library related because the main character is a librarian. Hmm. So it's this, um, amazing comic about, um, so, so the main character has this kind of superpower where when she orgasms, time stops. So, um, which sounds insane and it totally like seems insane when you're first reading it. Yeah. It's completely bonkers. And so, um, you know, so you see her kind of like in this time between times, she kind of, you know, reads a lot and gets things done and like, you know, relaxes and stuff. And then she ends up meeting this guy at a party and uh, they end up going to bed together and, um, you know, things happen. And then she's like, oh, that was amazing. And he goes, yeah, it was. And then the both of them stare at each other and are like, what? Like, so it turns out he also has that superpower. So, um, so what do they do? They end up actually, um, going on a crime spree because her library, 
yeah, her library is in trouble. So they start <laughs> they start robbing banks. <laughs> so they go to banks, stop time in the way they do, and then take money. <laughs> it's just such a good comic. And then there's this, yeah, there's the just all of the repercussions thereof are pretty freaking hilarious and the characters like it's just so smartly written and the characters are so wonderful and uh mm-hmm. and the yeah, art is I, great like i feel like the, the art, art is the fantastic. art grounds it yeah absolutely um so it's absolutely amazing again like it you know i don't want to spoil anything so but but yeah that would be my other kind of like little tack on to the end of the mind grapes is if you haven't checked out sex criminals i think there's two trades out so far i feel like i borrowed two from you yeah, I only have I only have the first two trades, um, but uh, but yeah, I think there's more issues coming out as well. Definitely worth it. Mm-hmm. Very very funny. One of the things we uh, we see a lot of kind of in the online Tumblr world is you know there always seems to be this this fight or not necessarily on Tumblr but in like a lot of blogs and stuff we see this constant fight between like ebooks versus print books mm. um what's the deal <laughs> like <laughs> as long as people are reading what the... anyway so um you know true to our forum i think in libraries we really tried hard to jump on the kind of ebook bandwagon and most public libraries, at least all of the ones in the Lower Mainland and a lot of the ones I, I know outside of the Lower Mainland, do have ebook lending capability. Um, it's something that we have tried to do. Um, there has been a little bit of news, uh, you know, or, you know, news lately around um, the elucidation of the fact that libraries are paying a rather significant markup for most of our electronic books. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nice to see kind of that stuff being paid attention to in media. But I think one of the things we recognize in libraries, and especially in the public library where these, um, you know, these things are being accessed by more people, is that it's by no means is ebooks in libraries a perfect system at this point. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's something that people want, and public libraries are in large part all about you know how people want to consume stories so we try to give it but it's it's complicated which which is kind of a nice segue (laughs) yeah so um an event that you guys uh sarah you helped to organize and sam you attended this last week um was the the ebook summit so uh this is um from what i understand kind of a, a gathering of librarians and thinkers in the in the area to come together and talk about kind of what are the ebook collections in libraries and what are we doing with them mm-hmm. right? and, and I'll, I'll point out too that it's um the official title is the ebook and digital collections summit and it's very much um thanks to sarah and everyone else who helped organize it um it goes beyond just you know ebooks as we think of them and talks about other forms of digital collections and what's happening with them and what libraries are doing to promote them and get them and put them into people's hands virtually um so sarah can you give us a little bit of a history about this event how did it get started and how long has it been going on so it's been going on since just after 2010 the first sort of event wasn't even the ebook summit it was a chance for uh it was after the Kindle and Kobo had just been released and uh, a bunch of libraries got together um, uh, facilitated by the BC Libraries Co-op which is sort of the host for the event and if you don't know about the BC Libraries Cooperative it's a um, actually not just a BC organization but a national organization that is about shared resources such as um, the shared ebook collection for many libraries in BC, but not the big ones like BPL. <laughs> um, and it also uh, helps out with uh, database subscriptions as well for organizations, including um, VPL, to sort of share the cost and is spread the uh, the resources around so that those in smaller communities and more remote areas can have the same access to content. So that was, I want to say. 
around 2010-ish, and then every year since then, um, we've descended upon VPL Central Branch and spent half a day talking about sort of what's happened in the past year, what are our options, what are the pri what's the pricing like, how are we dealing with it as um, public libraries, and uh, in the last couple years, we've have added in that digital collections because now we're not just concerned about ebooks, which I think most libraries, well, not completely comfortable, are more comfortable with digital uh, with the that ebook collection but now it's the well what do we do about streaming video and how mm. do we deal with um you know digital magazines and how do we feel about streaming music and and what should we do about this whole pay on demand thing for libraries which yeah. eh, you know yeah it makes it a little bit hard to plan and we do love to plan especially with our limited budgets very limited budgets yeah mm. so you've been involved pretty much every year in some sort of another, when I did start, I was um, pre-library school, I was a library technician with the West Van Library at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, since I was heavily involved with our uh, Kindle lending program when we first launched it, um, I was able to participate, uh, sort of helping out with the research and helping people get together and the, the behind the scenes things. And this year was my first year of actually being able to sort of pull put everything on the table um tell everyone uh, where they should be standing yeah it was, it was your show and it was a well-run show <laughs> I, I did volunteer you a bit Sam, and <laughs> I really appreciate what a good sport you were when I'm like hey you're awesome you get to stand up on stage for a couple minutes <laughs> just you know smile at me and tell me I talk nice and I'll do whatever yeah. you want <laughs> duly noted Yes, it's a good weakness that we can exploit. <laughs> well, you know, I prefer being told I have a voice for radio than the alternative. <laughs> um, yeah, it was great. So, I mean, I, I can maybe talk a little to what the structure was like this year, but has it yeah. has the structure evolved over time, do you think? or? It was a bit more talking head at the beginning. Um, we have always tried to have an interactive part. Um, there's often in many years other than this one, there's been flip charts involved where people can write on them, um, try and sort of rank things being like what issue around eBooks is the most important. Uh, and in the last three years, I know the breakout sessions um, where people can chat with others interested in the topics they're interested around specifically um, have been quite popular and a, a great way to get uh, more of a community of practice developed around uh, ebooks and digital collections. Um, but there's always that portion at the beginning where people talk about what's out there, what's happening, mm -hmm. and uh, what we like and don't like. Well, and being really new to this, like it was so perfect for me because I have literally been a part-time digital collections librarian for three weeks at this point. <laughs> and this is an area that, you know, since library school, I haven't had much contact with since I took classes on it. And so I, I appreciated both parts. Like I really liked that at the beginning it was, you know, Kay Cahill, who knows a ton about this stuff, giving us a, a state of the ebook kind of <laughs> kind of summary. And then we had people talk about a bunch of the different formats and what's going on in them and report out on different libraries and then got into the sort of discussing. Like, I feel if we had jumped right into the plenary sessions, I would not have wanted to talk at all because <laughs> I would have felt like I didn't know what I was talking about as someone new to this area. So I thought it was structured really well. And dear Lord, yeah. you were efficient. I really like keeping on time. My my greatest joy is when I can end a meeting early. Yeah. Uh, so try to spread that everywhere. Please, please come help us do that at VPL. <laughs> <laughs> so then would you mind terribly maybe like recapping that kind of like state of the ebook really quickly? So this sounds like a, a really cool event and I'd love to be able to share some of the content that you guys got through with the listeners. So what kind of is the is it is it more of a local state of the ebook or did you talk in more kind of broad strokes about what the ebook uh, industry is uh, currently doing to um, screw libraries? <laughs> Sorry, well, you can I see was... I'm coming at this with a bias. <laughs> it is, it is, and um, if you don't mind me jumping in, oh, of course, um, of course, yeah. okay. 
Um, so the state of the ebooks is we're doing so much better now in 2015 than we were in say 2010, 2011, 2012. It's <laughs> as someone that's been there the entire time, I've, I'm so happy with what we have. There are still the points where um, the publishing industry and some of the middlemen are definitely just saying, you know, you guys don't have that much of an option. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's very few um, options out there, so we're going to do what we want. But um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, one of the nice uh, new things that was shared with us that I've done a bit of the research around, but Kay from VPL was great about is that when you look at the Globe and Mail bestsellers list, every single thing on there is now available for libraries to buy as an ebook. Yeah, the numbers Whereas, were crazy. It was like in 2012, like. I, I want to say it was like 15 of 40 in English and like zero in French. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now yeah, it's, it's everything. It's, it is everything. And the, the problem we really have is the licenses we get. So for um, what you might pay at the, the Kobo ebook store is kind of weird because you're paying, you know, $18 for, you know, the newest James Patterson ebook. But when um, we go into the back end of the Overdrive ebook platform and we go to buy a license for, for a library, we're paying usually about $85 for a copy we get to sort of keep-ish mm-hmm. so that we're, it's not going to expire. It's not going to go away. We get to keep it. And um, the other options, some of the publishers say, you know, after 26 circulations, it goes out 26 times. It's going to expire. You have to repurchase it. And the prices of those ones range between $12.99 to $60. Um, and there are some of them that allow 52 circulations or two years, whichever comes first. Mm-hmm. And those also are about 40 to 65 $70, depending on how front list uh, those those titles are. Where do, uh, they, where do they come up with these numbers? I don't know. <laughs> well, what I, I mean, what I found really I think that was more interesting. Of a rhetorical question. Well, it is in some ways, but I mean, in others, and and Kay was really good about this. Like she was very sort of, these are problems, and we want to keep working on these price points, but also we need to think about what it's like on the publisher's end and how scared they are and what their sort of concerns and are. Yeah, and it's not just the publishers that are scared. It's a lot of the authors who feel like mm-hmm. if a library buys one copy. And lends it out and it never wears out, you know, and some kid never flushes it down the toilet. They're never going to buy another <laughs> copy and they're never going to yeah. uh, get a chance to do that. So it's 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 an interesting balance. But there's, um, you know, the our argument that we would never spend on one title, you know, a thousand dollars on one title for print ever. Yeah. So why would we be doing the same in different in ebooks? Yeah, and to get ten copies of some of those ebooks. And we're just talking like sort of ebooks. We're not talking about e audio, which is even more expensive from what I've seen. But they it's are it's interesting so- too because um part of part of what Kay was talking about as well, and maybe you can articulate this better than me, Sarah, is the issue of like, it's not just that we want those price points lower, it's that we want them to make sense in terms of what the longevity versus the price relationship is. So like, you know, having something be 12 months, um, you know, expiring after 12 months is fine if it's a bestseller that's, you know, going to be super, super popular for a little while, and then we're not going to need it again. And so, you know, sell us more uses at a higher price, and they'll you know, for 12 months and then they'll expire. Like that, that was interesting to me that it's not just that we want prices across the board the way that we have with things like a paperback, but that we want them for different situations. Does that sort of capture what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because when originally um, it was that just everything was super expensive and we had a very small selection. And then um, one of the publishers came and said, oh, we're going to solve your expensive book problem. Here's one that lasts 26 circs and it's much, much cheaper. Uh, so now as we've had these different models, it's actually sort of brought up a different issue where it's like, well, no, actually what we want is, you know, to buy sort of like one archival copy that we yes. will keep in our collection forever and then buy those uh, cheap 12-monthers uh, that we can circulate. And then as soon as everyone's read the newest, um, you know, Janet Ivanovich and finish with it, we can let those expire, but we'll keep, you know, because we want to have the entire series available to our patrons. Um, 
And so a mixed model where we're supporting the industry and we really want to be able to support the industry and help people discover new authors. But we can't do that with the super restrictive uh, models that are out there. And every time we say, you know, this doesn't quite work, they give us something different, but it's always somehow a little bit worse. <laughs> Hmm. No, it's, it's it's interesting, and I'm glad you're kind of giving me a bit of a little bit more of a of a of a um, you know optimistic perspective on it because coming from the academic publishing world, um, like academic publishers, pretty much just know they just want to screw you. So, and, and you know, the people who are writing the textbooks and writing the journal articles, they're not actually getting paid to write those textbooks necessarily, um, or they are, but like not in royalties. And it's, yeah, it's a completely different world. So it's, it's interesting to hear it kind of with a, with a little bit of a nicer kind of, well, we actually want to help the artists and help the industry mm-hmm. yeah, kind of and thing. It, what's it really interesting and what I like is there's a couple really good um, organizations out there that have been advocating as groups of libraries. Um, the Canadian Urban Library Council, which is made up of all the big libraries, the Vancouver's, the Edmonton's, the Ottawa's, Toronto's, um, have really worked together to um, make position statements, uh, come up with uh, sort of research and write uh, white papers around sort of the state of things. And there's an organization that's international called Readers First. And Readers First um, did a ton of research and came up with sort of a library's guide to ebook vendors about which ones worked better and which mm-hmm. ones were not as perhaps as good and rated them and, and put it together sort of a PDF little booklet that that libraries could work from to help them make decisions. And they really have been advocating um, not only around availability and sort of the structure at the back end, but they've also started working with uh, governments, mostly in the states, to start bringing up uh, things like the idea of the right of first sale uh, to work for for digital copies as well as physical copies mm-hmm. um, and saying that you can't really treat a library like a commercial entity because that's not their purpose. So let's yeah. yeah, not do that. Well, and coming back to our purpose is interesting, too, because mm-hmm. as you say, one of the big issues with with digital collections, especially digital books, is the ownership issue, right? I mean, we that archival copy is is not a thing from a lot of ebook vendors yet. And that's um, something we really, you know, need to owning our collections is kind of a big deal. Yeah, and it seems to me, um, I don't know how much either of you follow the self-publishing industry, but there are some of those um, popular self-published authors who understand the the problems around marketing a lot that are like, we want libraries to have, you know, a forever copy of our ebook for a reasonable mm. price, because how else are people going to discover mm-hmm. our, our works? Um, yeah. And uh, another good resource is something called ebooks are forever. And it's a small but growing sort of group of authors who say, you know, if you talk to us, we will sell you sort of cheap forever copies that the library gets to keep and they won't go away. Um, And that will help us grow our readership. Mm -hmm. But it's also a challenge for libraries, too, right? Because we need to be able to offer access to these things. And that often means going through a centralized platform like Overdrive, right? So again, yeah. these one-off copies is hard too. Well, that's that's a great segue because kind of I also wanted to ask some questions around like the actual systems that we use to get the eBooks into the hands of the people who want to read them. Um, I mean, you and I, Sam, we've both taught eBooks classes. Uh, Sarah, I'm sure that you have had <laughs> you've taught so many people how to use their e-readers. Do you think that these systems that we have are needlessly complex or do you think that it's just something that we're going to have to deal with? Um, I'm of of two minds. Like it is super frustrating um, to to get someone who's, you know, 80 years old with their e-reader hooked up with with e-books, especially the first time. And, you know, you have to have the, the key to open up your book so that um, it will let you read it. And it is, it is, feels needlessly complex, but it is sort of a, that false friction that in order to buy the books, that's, that's the, the trade-off. In order to have access to this content, we have to have that false friction in order for publishers and authors to allow us to do it. Mm-hmm. I feel it's it's kind of sort of a necessary evil. It could be easier if we could just authenticate, say, with our library 
library card number and a PIN mm. number, it would be way easier than having a password. And I, f- email I feel like in so many ways, Adobe just jumped in there at exactly the right moment. Because they're not they really were. necessary. Like ADE is sort of the definition of a middleman piece of software. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, they were they were very smart. They thought very well, and they are reaping the benefits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although in, there, in the form there of were, our data. Huh, yeah, well, it's a whole other issue, which was talked yeah. about at the summit as well. But one of the things that um, I don't know if it was Kay or Aaron who mentioned it in the initial presentations, apparently OverDrive is working on like library card number authentication. Mm. They are. And it does help to have the heavy hitters like Vancouver Public um, at that table and um, to be able to say, no, this this won't work. You know, we are a library that does have influence and and power and we want to make sure it's better for everyone in order for them to have. And they I think they are. Um, It was sort of I'd heard rumblings, but um, yesterday was the first time I ever heard that. Yes, they're actually working on this thing. I'm like, oh, that's new. Um, So that's not (laughs) something um, that has been even in some of the smaller ebook knowledge circles. Um, So, yeah, Vancouver is Mm -hmm. doing good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to elucidate the the shop talk on that, um, authentication is um, that kind of that key piece that Sarah was talking about. So. It's the way that you, um, you know, tell the vendor that you have a subscription to the library and thus have the right to read this ebook. Mm-hmm. Um, Adobe managed to kind of create an authentication system that has just been sort of adopted as the as the mainstream authentication system. Um, and one of the main problems with it is it requires um, an extra login, an extra password. Um, it requires the download of special software. And these are all kinds of things that, like, I really, I really hate asking patrons to sign up for more accounts. Yeah, like that just yes. rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And, and it is, uh, it is terrible. And you know, on a slightly off-topic thing, even getting people to sign up for email now from the biggies, you have to have a cell phone number in order to to get a new Gmail or a new yeah, Yahoo account. Yeah, it's happening which is with ridiculous. Facebook as well. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, <laughs> here we are trying to eliminate barriers and, uh, and here <laughs> yeah. are more barriers springing up, right? Yeah. And I don't know, it's an interesting moment, too, because in a lot of ways, OverDrive is kind of the the only mainstream name in library ebooks in terms of a platform that we can get a big collection through and provide access to. But but that's changing, too, right? I mean, the the presentation that followed Kay's kind of state of the ebook was... Um, was our colleague at VPL, Aaron, talking about Biblio Digital, which is a Canadian-grown um, ebook platform that's like just sort of in beta, um, and that was really interesting. That's actually the project that I have taken over <laughs> in my last few weeks as um, as a digital collections librarian. Which is so fantastic, and I'll probably be bothering you about it later. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's it's nice uh, to see yeah. the field growing a little, even if it's, you know, just tiny little chipping away with tiny, tiny chisels at Overdrive's Monopoly. Yeah, and there are other options. Uh, some of uh, local Canadian libraries and some in the States are using a 3M That's platform, right. mm-hmm. um, and which is basically the exact same thing as overdrive with a slightly different interface and theoretically easier authentication and i have yet to see proof of that (laughs) um so i i'm I'm waiting for it but it is a very similar um idea but the problem is is you can't port over a lot of your content so um many libraries are saying well we've got our overdrive collection of ebooks. We've got our 3M collection of ebooks. We're going to have this other collection possibly of ebooks. And then there becomes the problem of why would we be sending our patron who just wants to read a whole bunch of really good mysteries to four or five different places in order to discover them. Like how many, how many hurdles do we have to make them jump? Yeah, Yeah, no, it's, Go ahead. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It, it, it is a problem and why um, I really enjoy uh, the new library catalogs like Biblio Commons, which do allow us to sort of take away at least one of those barriers by making everything discoverable through the main catalog. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big reason why VPL decided that when we 
launch a new ebook platform and we haven't done it yet um that this biblio digital collection which is part of the biblio commons kind of suite of products um was the way to go in part because it's it's integrated into the catalog and so it's not this whole other interface right but it's the thing that's striking me as i learn a little bit more about this area of library work is just how many moving parts there are to it and in libraries Mm -hmm. we're used to systems with moving parts but this is you know We've got all these platforms and then the platforms have their own individual agreements with all these different publishers and some of them overlap in terms of the publishers they have those relationships with and some don't and it's harder to get small presses and it's, yeah, it's a little overwhelming. (laughs) It is, it is. And why we need new uh, wonderful people in digital services is that they... We, as a, as a group, seem to be able to keep track of those moving parts a bit better or new positions are created that are, are there to help keep track of the moving parts so that everyone else can, to you know, rest a bit easier to say, okay, there is someone keeping track of everything that's changing um, So the, and they will let us know when the change is important enough for, for us to have to, to do something about it. So speaking of these um, changes, Sam was telling me that um, one of the last things you guys attended was kind of like a, 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 an open chat about the future of ebooks and, and what we think is going to happen and what we hope is going to happen. Maybe we can kind of, uh, you know, wrap up our conversation by, by chatting a little bit about kind of what, what, what is the, what do we think is the future? Um, well, Sarah, I don't know if you jumped in on the group <laughs> that was talking about that at all. Um, I didn't, but I was... can help. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) absolutely, because what was interesting for me in that group was just sitting there and listening to all of these more experienced digital collections librarians talk about what they wanted. Um, What what do you want? Like, what's ideal for you sort of moving into the future of ebooks? Which I guess is a different question than what is the future, but, you know, take it any way you want. (laughs) If we're going to go, yeah, pie in the sky, let's let's think big and wonderful. I really like the idea where if we say buy a print copy of a book, we get the ebook bundled in for Mm. a, you know, a slightly cheaper buy two, get one half off sort of idea so that we can make sure um, one of the biggest issues that I'm finding um, as, you know, the technology just gets integrated so you worry about other things um is that the breadth of our collections and depth of the collections just we're not keeping up and so people who would love to use the library ebook collections say but you don't have that author that i want um but you have it in print why don't you have it in e so my beautiful future has us with you know an equally as robust e-collection in libraries as we do um, print collections And it's interesting that you focus in right away on the content because that's super key. And it's actually not something that came up too, too much in that in the the breakout session about the, you know, what's the next big thing. It was very platform focused, that conversation. And so, again, all those moving parts, right? We need to have really good content, but we also need to have these robust platforms that we have some control over and that that are protecting our patrons privacy and all of that kind of stuff. Which would be fantastic, too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was the big dream that came out of that that first group that you made me stand up at the front of the room and report on (laughs) was uh, was this question of like, could we as like BC public libraries somehow band together and create a homegrown like ebook platform that actually does what we want it to do? Very pie in the sky, but (laughs) exciting to think about. But technically, it is possible. There's um, a couple state library systems in California, and shoot, I want to say it's not Minnesota, but it's somewhere in the the middle, northern middle part of um, America. They have created their own platforms where they manage all the licenses and they make sure that they're getting, uh, they're talking to publishers and getting the right sort of setup that they, or the, at least the best they can do, um, especially around local content. And uh, it, the possibility is there and we're a good market because uh, there's so many creative people in BC that are creating really great works that we do want to be able to showcase, discover and archive and make sure there's access to in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, and that there's the tie in with, you know, the thing we talked about in our last episode, which is the inspiration lab, right? And, and places like it. I mean, we're enabling people to create content and to create potentially ebooks or e resources for others. So, how do we actually help them provide access to? It's, it's an exciting thing to look forward to. Oh, it's hugely exciting. 
Um, well, it so- sounds like it was an incredible event uh, and something that um, I'm so proud has been happening in Vancouver for so long. So what I'm wondering, Sarah, because I feel like we just scratched the surface here, is A, please come back at some future date so we can keep talking about ebooks. But B, (laughs) and as I learn more and have more intelligent questions to ask you, but also I'm wondering, is it okay for us to make the notes from the session um, available? Oh, definitely. Um, They are still living. I'm hoping that more people add in their breakout session uh, notes because we just have some super brief ones. Mm -hmm. So it is sort of a growing uh, document. But yes, make those make those available. their notes they're not super coherent but, I, I will uh, definitely do that well yeah and so and what was interesting I'm just scrolling through them now and like we've talked about some of the big sort of sexy stuff but there were also breakout sessions on things like budgets and statistics and those are really important no. pieces of this too and there, there, are, there are actually some <laughs> some digital collections librarians who kind of love that stuff like Anita was super excited to be in the statistics group <laughs> so that was that was really great um, the thing I think that excites me the most too, and, and Sarah, I don't know how much you guys do, uh, um, of this at West Van or what, what it looks like for you, but is the education piece, right? Is teaching people not just how to use this stuff, but how to protect themselves while using it too. Definitely. And that's, uh, that is exciting and being able to open people's eyes up to the possibilities or even just talking to interested community members about like, this is, you know, if you know a local authors group, tell them that we have this ability to make their works public. Um, if you know, they can work with us, we can talk to the vendors, um, and make it happen. And the privacy stuff, especially, I'm very excited about the, the library freedom project, um, as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. I'm getting excited to go back into work tomorrow and keep working on Biblio Digital. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Oh, no problem. It was my pleasure. And please do come back. We mean it. Yeah. Oh, I, anytime you want me, <laughs> there are, I'll be here. I feel like this conversation has 10 more parts to get to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I have even more to think about when I go into work tomorrow morning. (laughs) (laughs) That was, I was so glad that Sarah, and at short notice too, was willing to come and talk to us about this. And we need to continue to pick her brain in future episodes for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So a a big shout out again. Thank you so much, Sarah, for, um, for, for being a part of the show and uh, sharing your ebook knowledge with us. Cause that's, I think it's something that's really, really cool to be, to be talking about. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it is part of the future of libraries, because we're already doing it. And we need to continue to make it better for patrons, for us, for, you know, for the publishers, too. Um, So Sarah is at Sarah Felcar on Twitter, and we'll link to her in the show notes. So if you want to... uh, hit her up for more of her ebook expertise. Um, and we will definitely be inviting her back on soon to talk about related things. Um, and we'll also toss lots of notes in or lots of links in the show notes um, to the notes from the ebook summit and the agenda that was discussed during the day, um, as well as some of the organizations and advocacy groups that Sarah mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, right. if, if people want to know more about us, where can they find it? Well, about us particularly, the show, the podcast? Sure. All okay. Yeah. So all of our stuff is on our website uh, at sslibrarianship.com. You can find links there to all of our social media presences. Um, and uh, while you're there, if you're you know looking for some cool new swag to be showing off to all of your super cool librarian friends um we do sell buttons on the website so you can come to the website order a couple of buttons um and help us out that way too Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and there is also a donate button if you want to go mm. even further. Um, we do this thing, you know, kind of on the cheap, but uh, it ain't free, so every little bit yeah. helps. Yeah, um, yeah, and I guess I mean we're doing we're doing well on Tumblr. We're inching closer to six hundred. So thank you to everyone who's joined us there. And um, mm-hmm. I think we could hit a thousand Twitter followers by the end of the year. Yeah, I don't think that that should be too much of a problem because um, we're at 909 as of today's current speaking. Yeah. And I don't know how many of those are porn bots, but um, but we can we can figure that out. I'm sure. <laughs> None that are too, you know, prominent or noticeable yet. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> on, on Tumblr, I tend to follow everyone back. And then if I end up with a lot of porn, I unfollow. That's usually the way. Ah. 
<laughs> See, I usually follow for the porn. And, well, yeah, I mean, and, there's that too. Yeah, uh, we have had a little bit of feedback in the past uh, couple of weeks from some emails, and actually from Australia. Uh, yeah. apparently, apparently, we're we're, we're in hot Australia. in Australia. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm not going to insult you by talking about wallabies or you know Vegemite, um, but uh, but thanks so much for listening to uh, to Terry and Michelle um, who've been uh, talking at us about some things. Um, Michelle, in particular, had a suggestion of um, taking the piece where we talk about the new ACRL framework and releasing that kind of as its own chunk. Um, so we have been told in the past that some people do skip the first half of the podcast when we're just being nerds, which is totally fine. And that some nerds skip the second half of the podcast where we're just being librarians. Yeah. So, um, you know, listen at your own pace, guys. It's all good. We're all good. But anyway, so we probably will release that um, that ACRL piece as its own kind of chunk. So mm-hmm. if that was something that you're interested in or that you're interested in having some of your friends listen to, uh, but you don't want to embarrass them with our nerdiness, uh, that's, you know, we'll, we'll have that option up for you guys soon. <laughs> yes. And thank you for making sure that we were thorough about the housekeeping because we love getting emails. Um, yes. And we, we're really happy so to get emails. both of those. It's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess really all that's left this week is to thank Jonathan Colton, as always, uh, for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart. Uh, and I don't know that there's all that much more cruise news, except um, yep. that maybe we should use our platform to warn people against ever trying to deal with American Airlines customer service. They are literally <laughs> the worst. <laughs> all right. So I guess then that's it for us this guy's week. Uh, that's the one. That's the one. That's it. That's the take. Let's uh, let's let's cut it here. Um, and that's that's all then, folks. And as always, we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side. <laughs> David <laughs> Oh god, oh, god.